Thank you for being here with us this morning. Uh, if you'll take your Bibles and turn to the book of Philippians, we're going to be in chapter one. If you don't have your Bible, feel free to grab your phone and Google Philippians chapter one, and you'll find lots of options there. Uh, let me pray to ask the Lord that he would show us through his word what he has for us today, how our lives might reflect that of Christ. Lord, we ask that as we come before you today as a, a corporate church body, Lord, seeking uh, the best for your people through Christ. Lord, we ask that you would use this passage, your word, given through your Holy Spirit, inspired by your spirit to the different writers of your word that, that would be passed down to us, that we today might sit and read your word knowing that it is powerful, that it is alive, that it is sharp as a double-edged sword. And Lord, we ask that you would use your words to separate out our sinful desires from your godly eternal desires. Lord, that our hearts would be turned to you, that we would see in your word how we can better reflect the nature of Christ. Lord, give us a heart for one another as we collectively come together as the body knowing that we belong to one another. Lord, husbands for their wives, wives for their husbands, parents to their children. Lord, we ask that we would be a people who are known for loving one another and loving you, that our love for one another, our love for you, our love for Christ and what he's done, for your spirit living inside of us would be evident to the outside world, that that alone would be our witness, that we are people that are loving well because we are loved well. So Lord, as we read your word today, may it quicken our footsteps that we might follow you. May it motivate our hearts that we might see you in others. Their need for love, their deserving of the love that Christ has given to us, undeserving people. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 22, Paul starts with the word, Now. Now is a transition, and so Paul is telling us that he is transitioning from one idea to the next, but it's not a total transition. It's still under the broader umbrella of what Paul's been talking about. In chapter 1, he was thanking the Philippian people for the role that they played in his life. He was also telling them of his own affection that he had for them. Starting in verse 12, Paul then goes into an experience that he has had that most people would look at and say, you've been put in prison, you are no longer effective in your missionary task of sharing the gospel, but Paul says that it's actually served the cause of the gospel. Because of his imprisonment, the gospel has continued to advance and in verse 18, he asks the question, but what does it even matter that there are people who are antagonistic toward my work, toward the good news? What does it even matter, only that in every way, whether from false motives or true, that Christ is proclaimed? We see that as a driving force for Paul. Whether in prison or whether free, there is nobody who is freer than Paul. So he starts with that now. 
But I said it's not a, a total transition because he's now going to be talking about the expectation of something that is better compared to something that is lesser. And that's kind of what Paul has been talking about. He says, now if I live on in the flesh, verse 22, this means fruitful work for me. And I don't know which one I should choose. I am torn between the two. I long to depart and be with Christ, which is far better, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. And since I am persuaded of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that because of my coming to you, your boasting in Christ Jesus may abound. Paul starts now if I live on in the flesh. Throughout a lot of the Bible, that idea of flesh means our fleshly desires, our sinful nature. But that's not what Paul's talking about. He's not saying, now, if I continue to live on in my sinful desires, and the reason we know that is because of the context. Context is often important when you're reading the Bible, so you can read a little before, a little after, and try to understand what the author is telling us. And in this case, Paul is not telling us that he is sinful and if he continues to live sinfully, what he's simply telling us is, if I continue to live on physically, in the flesh, if I am still physically living, this means fruitful work for me. So Paul's saying, if I continue to live, if my life is not taken from me, and I continue to live in the flesh, then this will mean fruitful work. For Paul, fruitful work is earthly labor that produces heavenly rewards. Earthly labor, eternal rewards. So his fruitful work is his work here that goes on as he is living in the flesh. Now, fruitful work for Paul is interesting because it's a foregone conclusion. If I live on in the flesh, this means fruitful work for me. There's not a second option. There's not, I hope that it means fruitful work for me. If I live on in the flesh, that means fruitful work for me. The reason is found in verses 20 and 21. Paul starts in verse 20, my eager expectation and hope is that I will not be ashamed about anything, but that now as always with all courage, Christ will be highly honored in my body, whether by life or by death. And so Paul's saying, if I continue to live, it will mean fruitful work because Christ is highly honored in his body, whether by life or by death. Paul has already committed his life to Christ and not just in salvation, but in fruitful work. His life has been given to Christ. It is no longer his. His is Christ who lives in him. And therefore, verse 21, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And so Paul, knowing that I've given up everything, my life is Christ's, if I continue to live in the flesh, it means fruitful work for me. But this is a difficult mindset for us to grasp because I can't say that with the same confidence that Paul has. I would want some disclaimer of, for me to continue living in the flesh, I sure hope that the Lord will use that for fruitful work. 
but that's confidence in my flesh. And Paul's confidence is no longer in his flesh. He's given up his flesh because whether by life or by death, Christ will be highly honored in his body. That mindset is one that we can adopt as our expectation of fruitful work, shall we go on living. For Paul, fruitful work meant sacrificial living. It meant preaching the gospel. It meant spending time in prison, going dangerous places, evangelizing dangerous people, living amongst the Jews who were ready to kill him at a moment's notice. For Paul, this idea of a selfless, sacrificial dedication to others really meant sacrifice. It meant that there was an option that fruitful work would be cut short because of Paul's convictions. But his fruitful work would bear fruit. That's his goal, is that the work that he does, the labor in which he engages, would produce fruit in others. And in that idea, Paul says, if I live on in the flesh, it means fruitful work for me. And yet he says, I don't know which I will choose. Paul has this tension of longing for heaven, but desiring to do fruitful work. And it's in that tension that we understand, I don't know which one I should choose. And being given the choice yourselves, which one do you choose? Paul is sold out. There's no other option. There's no going back. He's saying, my life now belongs to Christ, with whom I have been crucified. So, if I live... It's for Christ, for the fruitful work. There's no other option. There's no plan B for Paul. Yet, he's torn, he says in verse 23. I am torn between the two. I long to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. You can relate to this feeling of being torn, right? Yesterday, at Randy's memorial service, Jim tore his papers in half. And he probably had good things written on both of them. You know, we've been torn with good decisions. An opportunity here, an opportunity here. How do I decide I don't know which to choose? A few Olympics ago, in the Summer Olympics, there was a marathon. And the, the way the camera was set up was at the finish line, facing the finish line, and around a bend came the runners. So the first runner in first place came around the bend, and he was far enough ahead that though his muscles were struggling and though he was not running at any kind of pace that he would have been happy with, he was still far enough ahead. But within about 10 yards, he collapsed and he's struggling and crawling and trying to get himself up, and he looks nearly paralyzed as he tries to get to the finish line. And then second place rounds the bend. And a couple seconds later, third place and fourth place, 
come around the bend as this man is maybe five yards from the finish line. His whole life condensed into these next 10 seconds as he struggles just to crawl five yards. And second place has quickly caught up to him, and he will not receive the gold medal. But the second place runner stops and gets down and picks him up and walks him to the finish line. Third place runs past as quick as he can, trying to overtake both of them. And the second place finisher could have easily got the gold medal. But he stopped and picked up the man who had run a good race and his body just gave out at the very end. What Paul is saying here is I'm torn between the two. I can have the gold medal. I can spend eternity with the Lord. That is far better. But I see you on the ground. And I know that it is more necessary for me to come and pick you up and walk with you to the finish line. It's a spiritual tug of war that Paul has. He desires to depart, which is far better, but he knows that he should stay because it is more necessary for their sake. His greatest longing to be with the Lord and this tension pulling him back to the Philippians who need him. And so bound by love to stay with them, he makes his choice. He's persuaded that this will be his choice. See, Paul here, with his eyes on heaven, puts his hands back to the work. He doesn't give up his hope of heaven. He doesn't give up his expectation of heaven. He still longs and desires, knowing that heaven is far better, and yet God has called him to stay. He needn't even know why. He just knows that for now, God has called him to stay. It's a selfless, spiritual dedication to the Philippian church and to others. It's the same selfless spiritual dedication that we see in Jesus. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus has a very strange interaction with two of the disciples. I'm going to read the first verse. In Mark chapter 10, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, approached him and said, Teacher, listen to this, we want you to do whatever we ask you. So these two disciples of Jesus go to him and tell him, we want you to write us a blank check and we will fill it in later. Who knows what that would have been? What would you have wanted if Jesus said, okay, anything you want, just name it and it's yours. We want you to do whatever we ask. I would say it borders on ridiculous that they would go to God made flesh, the creator of all things, and demand that he do whatever it is that we want. If you did that, I would call you ridiculous. 
I would hopefully apologize because I would just be mean. But it would be ridiculous. And so instead, we do it through prayer. God, I want you to do this for me. I don't give you a different option. This is what I demand of you in prayer. Will you do this? If we start with, dear God, and we end with, amen, we don't feel as ridiculous as James and John certainly should have. Dear God, I want you to do whatever I ask of you. Amen. And that's not how it works. Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? He asked them. And they answered him, allow us to sit at your right and your left in glory. So when you get to heaven, make us really important. We want to be right there. Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? Jesus is saying, I'm going to be crucified for the sins of all mankind. The cup of God's wrath will be poured out on me as I bear the sins of all humanity. You want to be drinking that cup? You want to be baptized in that way? Verse 39, we are able, they told him. Jesus said, you will drink the cup. You'll be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. You're going to die. You will die in a similar way, but not with the similar outcome. But to sit at my right or my left is not mine to give. Instead, it is for those for whom it has been prepared. When the disciples, the ten disciples heard this, they began to naturally be indignant with James and John. And Jesus called them over and said to them, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those in high positions act as tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you will be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you will be a slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, the difference here, they want to be at the top. And Jesus is saying, yeah, you've seen that happen. You've seen when the Gentiles, the, the non-Jewish people, become rulers, and they enslave people, and they lord it over them, and they gloat, and they boast, and they tell you of how great they are because they are on top. And Jesus is saying, that's not how it should be. The greatest among you will be your servant. Whoever wants to be first will be a slave. And even himself, he says, I did not come to, serve, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's the sacrificial, selfless dedication that Jesus had for others that he came and was willing to be the ransom that was paid for your life. That you, having sinned, deserve to be judged. You deserve to have the cup of wrath of God poured out on you to pay for everything you've done. And Jesus says, but I came to be a ransom. That though you are captive to your own sin... I've come to set you free to pay that ransom. 
to offer myself as a sacrifice, selflessly giving to others. That's what Paul is living like in Philippians. I am torn between the two. I want what I want because it's far better. But to remain in the flesh, to stay here physically alive, is better for you. You know, and this idea of far better just shows the the tension that Paul has here. Joining Christ is better for him, but staying with the Philippians is more necessary for them. The idea of selflessness and selfishness could not be more clear. Do I get to do what I want, or do I do what is best for someone else? Paul is giving us this picture. I've got a map. If I go, if I go north, I get to heaven. If I turn around and I go south, I go back to Philippi. Which one do I choose? He says in verse 22, I don't know which I should choose. Because a head looks good. It's selfish, but it looks good. It's easy, it's fun, it's light. There's no more suffering. And put yourself here in maybe a different situation. Maybe it's not heaven, but maybe it's something that you look at and say is far better. This is far better if I pursue and go where I want to go. Take my map with my compass and walk my direction, which is better for me. Or do I stop and turn around and say, but this is better for someone else? Do I choose what's far better for me or what is more necessary for them? It's the choice we all make. At some point in our lives, we choose, do I live for something that is greater than me? Do I choose to live for myself? the choice Pastor Randy made. If you weren't here yesterday, I would highly encourage you to watch the service online. We had his memorial service yesterday. And if you're not familiar with Pastor Randy because you're new here, he served our church for 37 years as the pastor and then the last few years as well, saying, I will go where it is more necessary. I could choose far better for myself, but I will go where it is more necessary. Paul's offering this as an investment opportunity for us. Where do you put what's important to you? It's estimated that the U.S. economy will spend $3.7 trillion on health and wellness this year comes out to like $30,000 a family on average just to stay alive, to look good, to live longer. Paul is saying, that's only the necessary. 
what is ahead is far better. But it's hard to admit that. It's hard to accept that because we don't have a picture of what is to come being far better. We don't often see heaven as far better. We see heaven as something that is far often distant, but far better? I don't know. My life is good. I can have good things here. I'll turn to Isaiah. You can turn there with me or you can listen. Isaiah has this vision from God in which he sees heaven and he describes it like this in chapter 6. Saying, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated high and lofty on a throne. And the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphim were standing above him. They each had six wings. With two, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they flew. And these angelic winged creatures called to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. The foundations of the doorways shook at the sound of their voices and the temple was filled with smoke. And Isaiah said, Woe is me for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips and live among a people of unclean lips and because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of armies. So Isaiah is having this picture of what Paul describes as far better and it is so intense that Isaiah's very first thought is, woe is me. I don't deserve to be here. Rather, I deserve death. Woe is me because I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips, and I have seen perfection. I know what it means to see God, and I don't deserve to live. And then an angel comes, one of the seraphim, and it cleanses Isaiah and it takes away his sin and his, and his iniquity. And then he hears the voice of the Lord asking in verse 8, Who should I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah says, Here I am, send me. To what? To where? How? Doesn't matter. Isaiah's hand is immediately in the air, volunteering because he was ready to die. And then the Lord spared him and he has no other thoughts in life. I'll just do whatever this means because of the glory of God. This is far better for Paul. Certainly Paul knew this text and knew what Isaiah was talking about, and Paul calls it far better for him. In John chapter 14, Jesus says that I, if I go away to prepare a place for you, then I will return and take you to the place I am preparing. And in six days, the earth was created. And now it's been 2,000 years. Who knows what heaven will be like? The Bible describes it as a radiant golden city where there's no sin, there's no sorrow, there's no death, there's no strife. There's endless joy, there's perfect peace, and there's probably the most incomprehensible for us, there's perfect and eternal fellowship with God. Can't be described. We don't even know what perfect fellowship would look like. 
But here's what we do know. What is unseen is far better. Paul's saying, what is to come for me is far better. And living for what is far better is something that sets us apart. I know a lady whose neighbors give her a hard time for, why do you go to church so often? Why do you have those people over to your house? Why do you do so much serving with people of the church? And why do you do so many things for other people? What do they do for you? And she answered, they're my family. This is the people that God has brought me to, to serve and be served by, to honor and to love, to give of myself for them. It's countercultural, and our culture wants the tangible. And they say, you can get what you can get, and we're saying, but what I want is not tangible. What is far better is unseen. That's what's far better to Paul. It's not explainable to somebody that doesn't have a hope of heaven. I'm torn between the two. I long to depart and be with Christ, which is far better, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Verse 25, since I am persuaded of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. Since I am persuaded of this, this, going right back to what he just said, that I know that I will, or that it is more necessary for your sake, being persuaded that his life being more necessary for the Philippians, being persuaded that I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. Though he has something better, he will choose something lesser because it is better for them. Paul sets aside his personal desires that he might selflessly and sacrificially dedicate himself to the spiritual lives and growth of others. When Paul says progress here, he's using a Greek word that's combined of two words, which is common in the Greek. It's pro, which means in front of or the first, and it's kopto, which means to cut or chop down. And so Paul's saying their progress is to cut or chop down what is in front of you. It was a military term or a frontiersman kind of term where you're going somewhere and in order to get where you're going requires you to chop down trees. It requires you, this idea of progress is laborious. They didn't have chainsaws. They sharpened axes and swung axes. They didn't have the same hardened steel that we have. It was a lot of work to chop down a tree. And that's what Paul is saying is, this is for your progress. I'm going to remain here that you will chop down trees, that you will keep moving forward. I'll sharpen your axes. I'll show you good strategies. I'll show you how to chop down the tree. But this is your progress in the faith. It's your joy in the faith to continue moving forward. And that's fruitful work. That's fruitful work for Paul to encourage their progress in the faith. Paul's fruitful work 
is different than your fruitful work. You don't have a church that's waiting for you to come back because they've been Christians for maybe 10 years. They don't know what they're doing and they need someone to show them how to walk forward and chop down trees. Your fruitful work might be in your home. It might be with your children. It might be teaching them how to read the Bible. It might be encouraging your adult children to take your grandkids to church. Your fruitful work will likely look different than Paul's. But what isn't different is that if you are in Paul's shoes and you are saying that this is good fruitful work for me to be here, then I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, that you might continue to grow in what you know of Christ, in who you know Christ to be. It's a selfless way of living. Paul doesn't gain from this. What Paul gains from is death. Death to Paul is the far better gain. This is a loss. This is Paul living sacrificially and selflessly. But often there's joy in the faith. When someone remains and continues and they show progress, there's joy there. But on the flip side, there's often disappointment. For some, the ax is too heavy it's too dull, they've swung it a few times, and it's just not for me. And so they walk away. Paul's had those people in his life having walked away from the only real way of living. But for those who continue, for those who progress in the faith, it is joy. One of the most important things I think that I recognize from this passages, Paul is still in prison, writing this from prison. Joy should be the last word that Paul wants to use, except for when I get out. But Paul's circumstances didn't dictate how he felt. His circumstances didn't change his mission. What God had called him to do, God had still called him to do, though he be in chains. Your circumstances will change. When you're young and full of energy, you've got lots of plans, you can serve the Lord with exuberance, you can go lots of places. You know, I was thinking, let me pause for a minute. I was thinking, my first thought was, you know, not many of you will be missionaries like Paul was. But I don't think that's true. I don't think that's true. I think that just depends on what the Lord has called you to do. I'm talking like overseas international missionaries or missionaries where your explicit goal is to live a life that is sharing the gospel. Like my goal, Paul says, is whether by life or by death that Christ would be highly honored in my body. He wants people to know that Christ has given him a new life, that he's a new creation, that his whole purpose is to live for Christ. And we've got enough young people here that you could have a career, 
of just telling people of the hope of the gospel. Like Paul, wherever that may take you, wherever that may go, wherever that may look, however your life ends up being, because God has called you to that. But regardless of whether God explicitly calls you, we'll read the Great Commission in a few minutes, that we are to go, that we are those people that are to take the good news to the ends of the earth. But Paul's situation and Paul's circumstances didn't dictate whether he was dedicated to the Lord. When things were good, he was dedicated to the Lord. When things were bad, he was dedicated to the Lord. And he has a hopeful tone here. He knows he's getting out, and his tone is hopeful. In 2 Timothy, his tone changes. Listen to Paul in 2 Timothy. For I am already, chapter 4, verse 6, being poured out like a drink offering. My life, if it was represented by the liquid in a cup, is being poured out for the time of my departure is close. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. There is reserved for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. And not only to me, but to all those who have loved his appearing. Whether young or old, Paul's commitment was to what Christ had called him to do. He no longer has this youthful enthusiasm. He's still in jail, a different jail, different time, no longer expecting to come and visit Timothy. But his goal to Timothy is still the same, to encourage for Timothy's progress, to tell Timothy to stay strong, to preach the word, not to give up on what God has called him to do. And I want to say thank you for everyone that came out yesterday and served selflessly and the last few days preparing for Pastor Randy's service. Our church was a beacon of light, a beacon of hope. Hundreds of people here, hundreds more watching online. All of the service from rolling out chalk lines to setting up chairs or taking down chairs facilitated the gospel. Together we came together for the gospel. That unbelievers might know that there is a hope that is far better than anything that they can see. That those who believe that there is some other God heard that there is one true God. Many people that Randy knew, that Sarah knows, came to support, not knowing that they would hear the good news, not having an expectation that their lives could be eternally changed from what they believed to be better to having a true hope that really is far better. And the church came together to display what it means 
to love one another and to care for one another. And then having heard person after person talk about Pastor Randy, what I had thought was, what a legacy. And as James continued on, I just continued to feel smaller and smaller and smaller. And I walked out of here feeling like, oh boy. But it also gave me a hope. It's a reality check. You know, what will people say of me? How will my life be lived? Am I living for what's far better? Or am I living for what's far better? Is my life the best part of what I'm expecting? Or do I have a hope that is far better and so I can endure whatever happens here? I can write with joy from prison. I can have hope that there is going to come a day when all of the pain and suffering is gone. So I need to live for now. What is your legacy? Paul closes this thought he has with verse 26. It says, So that, being persuaded, so that because of my coming to you, your boasting in Christ Jesus may abound. We don't like the word boasting. It's usually a prideful and proud way. We boast about ourselves. But Paul's explicit that their boasting will be in Christ Jesus. It's not an, a boasting of what they have done, but it's, an, it's a boasting of what Christ has done. That they have prayed for Paul. That they have continued to pray that Paul would be set free. So when he shows himself to them, they will know that they can boast in Christ because Christ has answered and honored their desire for Paul to return to them. That their boasting would be in Christ, not in their personal attributes, not in their personal works, but their boasting would be in what Christ has done. Paul knows that he will see them again. We don't know why he knows that, but Paul's confident, obviously, he's going to see them again. His work on earth is not done. Your work on earth is not done. You may want what is far better, and it may feel like what is far better is coming soon, and it may feel like what is far better is hundreds of years away, but whether it is truly a long ways away or whether it is coming quickly, our work on earth is not done today. We saw Jesus calling us to serve. We see Paul calling us to a life that is selflessly devoted to others. And I asked two people this week, what does this passage mean to you in that context of selfless spiritual dedication? One widow said, God has left me here to raise my kids. That her life might be selflessly devoted to them, that their growth and maturity in the Lord, that they might know the hope of salvation that she has. Another said, living for others 
Showing Christ's love is doing for others. She emphasized that it's doing that she saw here. Paul talks a lot, but behind his talk is the idea that he is desiring to serve them, to be with them, to encourage their progress and joy in the faith. See, Paul didn't want to just live. He wanted to live so that his life would be fruitful, so that his work would be fruitful, so that he could encourage them, that they might have progress and joy in the faith. And that is spiritual dedication. That is a selfless life that is lived well. Lord, we ask that we would be people who are selflessly devoted to you. Lord, that our own progress and joy in the faith might be evident. That our hope of what is far better easily outweighs what we have right in front of us. That our joy of what is to come is greater than our greatest joys on earth. Lord, may we be people that desire and are intentional about leaving a legacy that brings people together for the gospel, that the truth of Christ might come forth out of our lives and out of our lips, that I was once a sinner, that I had offended a holy God, that I deserved to pay for those sins, but through Christ, you made a way. Through Christ, the cup being poured out of wrath made the way for me to be forgiven for my sins if I would put my hope and belief in him. Or may that be our goal, our tension. May we enjoy the joy that comes in the lives of others when we serve them and we give them the hope that you've given us in the gospel. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.